0: Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Do you know the difference between foods labeled organic and foods labeled all natural? You might be surprised. Learn more at stonyfield.com. We're proud to be the leading organic yogurt maker and honored to support Living on Earth.
1: From
2: Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As Washington teeters on the brink of draconian cuts, some suggest that the massive farm bill that covers forests, food, farms, and conservation should be folded into legislation to fix the fiscal cliff, but others say not so
3: fast. It sort of boggles the mind that we would put a bill that would commit the government to spending a trillion dollars into another piece of legislation that's ostensibly designed to right the nation's finances, but that's exactly what some are proposing.
2: Also saving critically endangered turtles who get caught in the cold of Cape Cod, Massachusetts.
3: To our knowledge, this
4: phenomena of a mass-stranding of hypothermic sea turtles on an annual basis. This is the only place in the world that we know it happens at this scale.
2: We'll have those stories
5: and a visit to the place where you live. This week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is
2: Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As Washington squares off over the budget impasse known as the fiscal cliff, a compromise may involve the Farm Bill. Both the House and Senate Committees on Agriculture have proposed measures to slash billions. But a deal to bring the Farm Bill as a rider to a last-minute tax and spend package has drawn sharp criticism from left and right. The Conservative Heritage Foundation calls farm subsidies the nation's largest corporate welfare program. And similar warnings come from Scott Faber of the Progressive Environmental Working Group.
3: The Farm Bill is a trillion-dollar bill that not only provides subsidies to farmers, but also provides conservation payments to farmers who are offering to help the environment. It funds programs that help feed the hungry. It invests in research, renewable energy. It will cost more than the, the Affordable Care Act over 10 years. There's no piece of legislation that has a bigger impact on what we eat and how it's grown.
2: The farm legislation appears to be a bipartisan process uh, this year. There's a proposal from the Senate Committee on Agriculture, uh, one from the House. Let's talk about them. First, what's in the House measure?
3: Well, the House measure is just one of the worst pieces of farm and food legislation in decades. It cuts food stamps dramatically. It cuts funding for environmental programs. And it uses those savings to give the largest, most successful farm businesses a huge raise at a time when uh, farmers are enjoying record income and seeing the value of their land reach levels many of them never could have imagined.
2: Now, at what point is the House bill? Is this something the whole House has considered and and brought forward, ready to do a deal with the Senate, or does it have some more work to be done?
3: No, the House bill uh, is the, the, the bill produced by the Agriculture Committee has not reached the floor, in part because the leadership of the House was not confident that it could get the votes to pass. It's really incredibly important That a bill produced by this particular committee reaches the floor because the House Agriculture Committee, probably not surprisingly, is dominated by legislators from districts that collect the lion's share of farm subsidies. Uh, And unfortunately, the authors of the bill would very much like to bypass floor debate. It sort of boggles the mind that we would put a bill that would commit the government to spending a trillion dollars into another piece of legislation that's ostensibly designed to right the nation's finances. But that's exactly what some are proposing.
2: What's in the Senate Farm Bill, as proposed by, what, Chairman Deborah Stabenow from Michigan?
3: The Senate Farm Bill is much better than the House Bill. The bill does not cut food stamps nearly as much as the House. Um, The bill does not increase subsidies as much. But many of the reforms that would would ultimately be included in the final bill would only come from a a full-fledged debate on the floor of the House where members are not as beholden to the largest and most successful farmers.
2: Now, the uh, House bill, under the leadership of Chairman uh, Frank Lucas from Oklahoma, uh, says it would save $35 billion. The Senate measure, I gather, would save $23 billion. Where do these savings come from?
3: Unfortunately, the, almost half the savings in the House bill come from cutting uh, food stamps or what, cutting what's now called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP at a time when hungry families are really struggling. The savings that are predicted are really an illusion because of the way they've designed the new subsidy programs. In particular, what they've done is they've included some price guarantees for the major commodity crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, rice, and so on, that may not appear to cost much, according to the Congressional Budget Office, but could cost the taxpayers tens of billions, even hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years if the price of these major commodities fall, even modestly. So there's certainly a, quite a bit of budget gimmickry associated with those savings. The long-term costs, the real cost to taxpayers of the House bill will be far greater than CBO estimates.
2: The Congressional Budget Office. So I understand uh, that both measures uh, contemplate cutting conservation programs.
3: Both measures cut conservation programs, and which is very disappointing. Just in the last four years, we've seen more than 23 million acres of wetlands and grasslands plowed up to produce corn and other crops. That's, that's an area the size of Indiana. What's more, there's new studies that show that about 80,000 miles of rivers and streams are still too polluted to meet the basic goals of the Clean Water Act. And in most cases, agriculture runoff is the primary culprit. So to cut those programs, the only safety net we have for the environment, is really disappointing in light of what's going on in the landscape.
2: What's in either version of this farm legislation that would help farmers cope with the extent of drought that we have now in this country?
3: There is already in place, through what's called government-subsidized crop insurance, an incredibly generous program that allows farmers not only to insure against losses in yields, but against losses in business revenue. And so in places like Iowa and Illinois and Indiana, Nebraska, where, where we've seen this terrible drought, The vast majority of farmers, more than 80%, in some cases more than 90%, have purchased government-subsidized insurance. And, you know, by and large, farmers who grow major commodities have an incredibly generous system of
2: protection. Now, some would say that the Environmental Working Group, where you're vice president of government affairs, is a progressive or a liberal organization. In your view, what are the conservative objections to these uh, farm bills as proposed?
3: We've worked with many groups from the right, including Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, Americans for Prosperity, and terrific fiscal g- leaders who, like the Environmental Working Group, believe there are significantly more savings to be found if we really reform farm subsidy programs, especially in light of the fact that the household income of a, of a real farm, a large commercial farm, is, is well above $200,000 a year. So. These are the sorts of people who shouldn't be getting subsidies. These are the sorts of people who should be perhaps the subject of some tax increases.
2: Scott Faber is Vice President of Government Affairs for the Environmental Working Group in Washington. Thank you so much, Scott. Great. Thank you. By the way, dairy and meat farmers get little or no federal subsidies, and drought can make for a tough beef market. And talking of tough, the Kansas City Star recently investigated mechanically tenderized beef, A year-long probe of the practice found it's pervasive throughout the American beef market, and while it may improve the texture, mechanical tenderizing can create a hidden host for life-threatening pathogens. Sarah Klein is a senior food safety attorney at the Center for Science in the Public Interest.
6: You know, many of us think of tenderizing as something you used to do in your kitchen with a mallet, but the process that they have now is not at all like that. We're talking about Hundreds, if not thousands, of tiny little needles or blades, very, very small, making a bunch of teeny tiny little incisions into the meat. Uh, It's supposed to make it a little more tender, as the name suggests. Meat today is tougher than it used to be because of the way we're raising cattle. The life cycle has been compressed and we're giving animals growth promotants so that we can pack more meat on them in a shorter period of time. And the theory is that that makes the meat tougher in the end. So the beef industry has found a way to tenderize the meat rather than changing the raising practices.
2: Why is mechanically tenderized beef more dangerous than beef not tenderized in a mechanical fashion?
6: Typically, uh, the pathogens that we're concerned about with beef, they exist on the hide of the animal. They come in in the form of manure, and then they're transferred to the interior of the animal during processing. Sometimes the bacteria become aerosolized. Sometimes actual bits of the manure will fly onto the carcass. Those things get trimmed off into steaks. And if you left that steak alone when you cooked it, you'd almost always sear off the contamination, even if you left the interior of the steak rare or medium rare. But once you use those needles or blades and you push The pathogens that are on the exterior down inside the meat, now you've basically turned your steak into a piece of ground beef. And that means you'd have to cook it through thoroughly in order to ensure that the pathogens that are now inside the meat get cooked out.
2: What are the pathogens you're concerned about here?
6: We're primarily concerned about E. coli. These are pathogens that don't cause generally a, a mild gastrointestinal illness, the kind of thing where you stay home for a couple of days you know, with diarrhea. These are serious, serious foodborne illnesses that can result in everything from you know, kidney failure or long-term health consequences like arthritis or even paralysis or death.
2: How many people uh, do you think come down with these afflictions from eating beef in the United States in a given year?
6: It's hard to know exactly because the way that we report foodborne illness to the Centers for Disease Control means that all we know is kind of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. What we do know is 48 million Americans are getting sick from foodborne illness every year. 3,000 Americans are dying every year. It's hard to know exactly how many of those are attributed to beef, but we know that the number is not insignificant.
2: So there I am now. I'm looking at my organically fed, uh, grass-fed beef. Am I running the risk, when, if I were to bite into that, of having it been mechanically tenderized?
6: Yes, I think it's important for consumers to know that organic and grass-fed are judgments of humane treatment. There are also judgments of the antibiotic use that has gone into the production of that animal. They are not themselves indicators of any greater safety protection from acute illness.
2: Please give me an estimate of how much uh, beef consumed in the U.S. has been mechanically tenderized and where a consumer might be most likely to run into it.
6: Unfortunately, it's hard to know exactly how widespread this process is. Some experts have estimated it could be as much as 90% of the intact product that's sold in the U.S. is actually not intact. That is, it's been needle tenderized or blade tenderized in some way. I think it's fair to say that anytime a consumer is eating steak, whether they're eating it in a restaurant, in a cafeteria, in a hotel, or in their own kitchen where they purchased a piece of meat from the grocery store, it is highly possible that that meat has been needle tenderized. Because there's no labeling, there's really no way for a consumer to know.
2: So as I understand it now in this conversation, you're saying the vast majority of beef sold in the United States is likely to have been mechanically tenderized, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture doesn't require that beef producers label it as such.
6: Why is that? USDA is actually now considering labeling. Um, I think the agency has finally come to recognize that this is a, a gaping loophole in food safety. An organization that works with the retail sector, that is with restaurants and grocery stores, has also asked for the labeling so that their members can comply with rules that require them to cook ground beef products differently than steak products.
2: So the vegetarians may not have to worry about this, but what about folks who do want to consume beef, what, in your opinion, should be done to make beef more safe for them?
6: The most important thing for consumers to do is practice defensive eating, and that is make sure that you're handling your meats carefully to avoid cross-contamination. If your raw meats are, in fact, carrying pathogens, uh, you want to make sure that those don't spread around your kitchen. So we don't use the same cutting board for meats that we're then going to use for raw produce items. And most importantly, cook your meat thoroughly using a meat thermometer, check to make sure that it's reached the appropriate internal temperature. It's far better to adjust your palate to a more well-done meat than it is to suffer from a serious foodborne illness.
2: Sarah Klein is Senior Food Safety Attorney at the Center for Science in the Public Interest in Washington. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. We called up the American Meat Institute for their response to the Kansas City Star articles. They referred us to Christy Bratcher, an assistant professor of meat science at Auburn University in Alabama. Christy Bratcher, welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. Now, can you estimate for me just how much of the beef produced in the U.S. has been mechanically tenderized?
7: I don't think I could put a percentage on that number. Typically, product that's going to go to a restaurant that is a select or lower grade is tenderized if it's a steak cut.
2: When it comes to beef, there's what? At the top is prime, and then there's choice, and then there is select. Correct. Before you get to the utility grades. How much of the select beef uh, is there in the U.S. Uh, proportionally, do you think? Is this more than half or three-quarters?
7: I would say maybe around, around half. We want to guarantee a tender beef product, and, and by doing this mechanical tenderization to a select or lower grade. We can guarantee a tender product.
2: How safe is mechanical uh, tenderization? There have been questions raised that it promotes uh, the spread of E. coli if the meat isn't properly cooked.
7: You know, I don't consider it a large problem at all. Obviously, there have been recalls and um, serious illnesses, a concern uh, associated with mechanically tenderized beef, but those are very unfortunate incidences that happen on a very low incident, you know, current. Those people have gotten sick and You know, it has affected the rest of their lives, or, you know, unfortunately, some people have lost small children um, to death, and those are horrible events that have happened. However, if we're cooking our beef to a safe temperature, then you shouldn't have problems with bacterial growth.
2: Now, the Kansas City Star uh, has published a a series of articles that's looked into the beef industry and they raised a number of concerns about mechanically tenderized beef. They, they they say, look, this creates a perfect host for E. coli, and they pointed to cases where people had gotten sick. Kansas City Star overreacting in your view?
7: You know, I believe that they are overreacting. I think they're also doing a good job of trying to educate consumers, but sometimes I think they need to look a little bit deeper and get some scientific information before going out and trying to scare the general population about practices that are very safe within the meat industry and has had a lot of research done to prove that they are safe.
2: Christy Bratcher is an assistant professor of meat science at Auburn University in Alabama. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you for your time.
2: Just ahead, playing the Good Samaritan to endangered turtles. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Swimming season in New England ended weeks ago as it's just too cold. But the chilly water of late fall brings some special guests inside the arm of Cape Cod. Every November, sea turtles caught in the cold begin washing up on shore.
4: The north side of Cape Cod is formed like a big bucket. Turtles, when they get the instinct to swim south in the early autumn, that instinct is blocked by all this land.
2: That's Tony Lacasse of the New England Aquarium. For the past 20 years, the aquarium has been partnering with the Audubon Society to rescue turtles who become too cold and get stranded on the beach. This year, there are more of these hypothermic turtles than ever in need of help. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has our story.
8: Each year in November, dozens of volunteers pull on hats, zip up their parkas, and tramp the beaches of Cape Cod from Sandwich to Truro. They head out just after high tide, sometimes in the dark, following the rack line where seaweed marks the water's highest point. These hardy beachcombers are looking for turtles.
4: We are watching for that familiar sea turtle shape about the size of a dinner plate, but with flippers.
8: Michael Locke and his 9-year-old son, Skyler, have been volunteering with the Massachusetts Audubon Society for four years now.
4: We asked if we could volunteer for their sea turtle rescue program, and we were assigned to this very beach, Linnell Landing Beach, the next day. And so what happened the next morning? I can't remember what happened. Who saw the first turtle? Me. You did? Yeah, I couldn't believe it.
9: I was really excited when we found that first one.
8: They comb the beach in the evening after Skylar gets out of school. When they spot a turtle, they set it above the tide line for the Audubon staff to collect. You um, try and find a sort of marking so Audubon can see it better. and Yeah, something that
4: really stands out on the beach so that when Audubon uh, comes down to the beach
8: to find and pick it up, they can locate it easily. This year, there have been more stranded turtles than ever before, but Skyler has only found a couple, and he's looking to add to his total.
9: Most we found in one year, is 6 and we're trying to beat that record. We've still got 5 more numbers to go because we've already found 2. So if we added our last 3 years up, I'd say that's about 14.
8: Bundled up and armed with flashlights, Skylar and his dad head off into the night.
0: Do you think we're going to find any today? I don't
8: know. I don't know. We still have uh, quite a bit of beach to walk. Yep.
7: Okay. Yeah, we're going to walk down I, to Crosby. I think we have a pretty Good chance of finding one because northwest wind, that's the best wind for it. Um, But the rack line is a bit thin.
8: Massachusetts Audubon delivers all of the turtles that volunteers find to the New England Aquarium's Animal Care Center in Quincy, Massachusetts. The Animal Care Center is in an old brick building along the Quincy Wharf. Freight trains wind between abandoned warehouses with smashed windows, and the smell of the sea is thick. Tony Lacasse let me into the center. Inside the cavernous room are massive circular tanks like above ground swimming pools. They're filled with threatened sea turtles, spotted greens, large loggerheads, and the most endangered sea turtle in the world, the Kemp's Ridley.
4: The predominant species and the most important ones are these little Kemp's Ridleys. They are everywhere from dinner plate size to serving platter size. The juvenile sea turtles are a charcoal
8: black, with a white serrated edge, and they sort of have a heart-shaped shell. As I peer over the edge of the tank, a turtle comes up for air. Tony says, don't get too close. They're really cute little guys, but you still gotta be
4: careful with them. These
8: guys primarily eat crabs, so if you stuck your finger in there, uh, you might have, uh, you know, require some good stitches. Every day, the Audubon Society delivers batches of turtles to the center in Quincy.
4: We had three days last week where we had more than 20 turtles come in at a time. And to give you an idea of how unusual that is, sea turtle hospitals in Florida might see 20 sea turtles in a season.
8: This hospital can hold about 100 turtles at a time. If they get more than that, they have to offload them to other facilities up and down the East Coast. The center recently sent 35 turtles to Florida in a Coast Guard plane. Tony says that scientists at the aquarium aren't sure why so many turtles have stranded this year. It could be good news. The total population of turtles is recovering, and the number of hypothermic turtles is rising along with it. But climate change could be playing a role as well. Tony thinks that warm water temperatures last year might have confused the turtles, delaying their normal migration.
4: In 2011, we had water temperatures that were five and six degrees above normal for a good part of the year. And so the normal environmental queuing didn't happen because the water was warm, and they probably thought they had more time.
8: When the turtles arrive at Quincy, they're usually in pretty bad shape. They have often been floating in the bay for months and have used up all of their fat reserves.
4: Normally there should be like big rolls of fat that you'd see on like a 12-month-old baby coming off of its thighs. But what will happen is, is that you'll literally see a skinny leg with sort of draped skin over it. And that just indicates how
8: both dehydrated and how emaciated a lot of these turtles are. First, the hospital staff treat each turtle for hypothermia and dehydration. Unlike warm-blooded animals, these reptiles need to be rewarmed gradually, about five degrees a day, to prevent infections. Once a turtle is back on its flippers, it can be moved into one of the big tanks with the others. The staff paint a number on the back of every turtle's shell with white nail polish so that they can keep track of each individual. One of the biggest challenges can be feeding.
10: My job right now is to focus on number 28. He's not eating.
8: Carla is a volunteer at the turtle hospital. She's dangling a piece of herring in front of a small turtle with a white number 28 scrawled on its shell. Despite her efforts, 28 isn't interested in the food.
10: So what we're doing for 28 is we're actually um, tube feeding him, which we don't like to do, and it's kind of stressful for the animal, so that's why I'm supposed to work on him for at least a half an hour.
8: Feeding the turtles is an exact science, and the staff carefully monitor each individual's food intake.
10: We feed them squid and herring, and everything is weighed, so we know exactly how much they're eating.
8: Recent arrivals often struggle to eat solid food, and as Carla tries to coax these reluctant newcomers, healthier veterans sometimes get in the way.
10: Oh, see, see, number 55. He's obviously hungry. You're
8: trying to feed number 93, but number 55.
10: (laughs) Yes, number 55 is hungry, but I bet he's already reached his capacity.
8: Turtle rehabilitation takes a long time. Best case scenario, a turtle will be out of the center in a couple of months, but some will require nearly a year of treatment. When the turtles are healthy, the aquarium transports them to warmer waters to be released.
4: If the turtle's ready to go in January or February, we'll arrange for the turtle to be flown down to Florida or to South Georgia, to be released down there. Uh, If the turtle's ready in, let's say, March or April, we'll bring that turtle down to the Carolinas. Uh, If they're ready in the summertime, we'll release them off of the Cape or off of Martha's Vineyard.
8: The New England Aquarium and Wellfleet Audubon have been rescuing turtles for 20 years now, and they're proud of their record.
4: If a turtle arrives alive
8: here, it has a 90% chance of surviving and being released. That's thanks to biologists, veterinarians, and hundreds of committed volunteers, young and old. In the past 20 years, they have rescued, rehabilitated, and released over 1,000 sea turtles. For these critically endangered creatures, every effort counts. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald.
2: And thanks to Naomi Ehrenberg, who helped report this story. Nigeria produces roughly 2 million barrels of oil every day and is one of the largest exporters in the world. Yet the enforcement of environmental laws is lax in this West African nation, and oil spills are rife, though seldom reported. But a recent huge spill from an ExxonMobil facility is getting attention. It has devastated fishing and apparently spread oil across perhaps 20 miles of water offshore from the Niger Delta. Tim Cox, the chief correspondent for Reuters in Nigeria, joins us via Skype. He says the Exxon subsidiary in Nigeria has admitted responsibility and is working to clean up the mess.
1: Exxon says that they are doing their very best uh, to contain it. At the last, what we heard from them was sort of late last month, and they said that we are using dispersants to try and get rid of it. They're doing their best to clean it up and that the cause of the spill is still being uh, investigated.
2: Now, there was a similar spill, as I understand it, from an Exxon facility uh, back in August. How does this one compare to the August spill?
1: I'm actually a little bit on the spot there because we've had so many oil spills that uh, you do start to forget which one is which and which one was bigger than which. Also, there isn't usually very much information about the spill. Uh, The only way to find out is to go down there and, and look at it and to see how far it's spread. And even that, it's very hard to get an accurate picture because... So much oil has been spilt, particularly on the onshore swampy areas of the Niger Delta uh, over the years, that often you might get to a place where locals say this is the spill from Exxon or from Shell or from one of these companies and it's just it's impossible to say whether that is from that spill or from one that happened earlier. We're talking about something that happens very very frequently, so whether this spill is worse than anything we've had for a while, I really don't know I don't think anyone knows exactly how many barrels uh, were actually spilled in this.
2: Now, why are these big spills so frequent there in Nigeria? Am I right to assume that the penalties uh, for a spill in Nigeria don't compare to the penalties, say, here in the U- United States?
1: There are definitely penalties for oil spills. The issue is that they're not generally enforced and that there's definitely a perception that the Nigerian government either can't or or won't enforce uh, any kind of punitive measures against oil companies for spills. What this really does show is that the oil companies are not following best practice in Nigeria the way they would have to somewhere like the Gulf of Mexico, where if you spill oil as BP uh, just discovered, it's a whole load of trouble for you. The main argument that the oil companies have for the continuation of oil spills on a regular basis is that it's not really their fault, it's the fault of oil thieves who hack into pipelines and steal the oil so that they can either refine it for sale to the local market or sell it on ships going to to be refined uh, elsewhere outside of the country. Just to give you an idea of just how much oil is is being stolen, the finance ministry came up with an estimate recently uh, in which they said something like a fifth of Nigeria's oil is lost to theft. Putting it in context, that's 400,000 barrels a day of oil being stolen. It is a major problem, and it certainly is a major contributor to the spills.
2: If 400,000 barrels of oil are being being stolen every day, that's not exactly a mom-and-pop business. I mean, there must be enterprises that are dealing in this.
1: It is a multi-billion dollar business. There is complicity uh, at all levels, according to experts in this field. Complicity between the security forces and the oil thieves, between some uh, local politicians and possibly even some politicians at the federal level, and of course between uh, international criminal networks, because the vast majority of this oil isn't refined local or sold locally, it's sold abroad. The main networks buying it are in Singapore, which uh, is makes sense because it's it's a major refining center I think it's the biggest refining center in the world, and in the Balkans where you have criminal networks that are known for things like uh, trafficking sex workers or selling cigarettes so it is a huge international criminal enterprise
2: Have you seen an oil spill yourself there
1: yes, I, I made a visit down to the Ogoniland region, which is one of the worst affected by oil spills. Ogoniland is where Nigeria first discovered oil and it's where it first started pumping oil more than 50 years ago. There were two major spills by um, Shell, which is the leading operator in Nigeria, uh, I think around 2008. And Shell accepted responsibility for those spills. They didn't sort of try and say it was oil thieves or anything. The places that I saw, and we went out on a boat quite a long way. You could just see dead mangroves for miles around, these kind of blackened husks of mangrove trees. Oil was absolutely everywhere, and, and we're talking sort of several years after the original spill. And so whether it was just the 4,000 barrels that Shell says were spilt, or whether it was more like Amnesty International suggests, several hundred thousand barrels, it clearly had a very damaging impact. You know, there were fishermen out in the water and they'd come back and there'd be a few little fish that they had that were sort of tainted in this rainbow film of oil, clearly really struggling to make ends meet with the waters so thoroughly poisoned by this oil.
2: How's the wildlife faring with all this oil?
1: Oh, well, the Niger Delta is a major, majorly important hub for wildlife. It's a, a huge expanse of mangrove swamps and creeks, rainforest. You know, when I was down there, I, I could see herons and, and other, other birds that like that water treading through what was effectively an oil slick. So, in terms of what it has actually done to the overall wildlife in the region, I don't know. I'm not even sure if anyone has done a comprehensive study.
2: How is civil society in Nigeria responding to this epidemic of oil spills? Of course, famously, a number of years ago, uh, Ken saro speaking in protest about this, uh, was ultimately executed for his efforts.
1: The land communities are still very much trying to keep that activism uh, from that time alive. Of course, the problem is that they do feel as if no one is really listening to them.
2: The statistics would say that Nigeria is one of the top twenty oil-producing countries on the planet. What does that mean in terms of money for the people of Nigeria and for the Nigerian government?
1: For the Nigerian government, it means that a huge cash register goes off every day, huge amounts of petrodollars pour into their treasury. What does it mean for the people? I think most Nigerians would say that it hasn't meant very much for them, other than everything's very, very expensive. Oil has been with Nigeria for many decades, and they don't really feel, most people don't feel, that they've benefited from it. They feel it's going into the government coffers uh, and then in people's pockets.
2: Tim Cox is the chief correspondent for Reuters, based in Nigeria. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you. Asked for comment, ExxonMobil's managing director for its Nigerian operations, Mark Ward, sent us an email assuring us that Mobile-producing Nigeria is committed to a speedy and comprehensive cleanup. Our oil spill response plans have been quickly implemented in line with this objective. Well, it's that time of year when the smell of fresh pine and spruce fills the air of many homes. And the conifers that get adorned for Christmas come from a stock of evergreens that makes it possible for one tough bird to survive.
11: Here's Michael Stein with today's Bird Note. In the boreal forest, the broad expanse of forest lying south of the Arctic, winter temperatures routinely drop to 30 below zero. Birds that spend the winter in this harsh domain of spruce, pine, and other conifers rely on remarkable adaptations in order to survive. The spruce grouse is one such bird. Most spruce grouse, rotund, chicken-like birds that weigh about a pound, remain here all year. In the snow-free summer, they forage on the ground, eating fresh greenery, insects, and berries. But in the snowy winter, the grouse live up in the trees, eating nothing but conifer needles. Lots and lots of needles. Simple enough, right? Just keep eating. But conifer needles are both low in protein and tough to digest because they're heavy in cellulose. To meet the energy demands of winter on needles alone, spruce grouse, this may seem hard to believe, grow a bigger digestive system. Their ventriculus, or gizzard, which grinds food, may enlarge by 75%. So remember the hardy spruce grouse this holiday season. As you stand back to admire a Christmas tree, somewhere in the northern forest, a grouse is nibbling away at such a tree, one needle at a time. I'm Michael Stein.
2: There are some pictures of chubby spruce grouse over at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, for humanity, it's as vital as breathing
5: or eating or light. We need the natural world for our health. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
2: With all our laptops, smartphones, and televisions, it's sometimes hard to find time to get outside and enjoy nature. But according to Professor Stephen Kellert, since we evolved with nature, connecting to it is essential for human well-being. Stephen Kellert is a Professor Emeritus of Social Ecology at Yale University. Along with the eminent biologist E.O. Wilson, Professor Kellert champions the concept of biophilia, the notion that responses to nature are embedded in our genes. So, a fear of dogs and spiders and snakes is innate, as is the comfort of a garden and the wonder we feel at a beautiful sunset. In his new book, Birthright, Professor
9: Kellert outlines why nature is a must for humans. Well, really, it's fundamentally about our humanity. It's in our own self-interest, and it contributes in so many ways to our health and well-being. Many of our basic tendencies our ability to reason, our ability to emotionally connect, our ability to, uh, to avoid things that are harmful to us, and in many other ways, are deeply contingent on our relationship to the non-human environment. We are, after all, a biological animal, and to the extent that we disconnect or separate ourselves from that non-human environment, we do so at our diminishment, if you will, or impoverishment of our physical and and mental health. Increasingly, where we spend most of our time, we spend 90% of our time on average now indoors, and 82% of us in the United States, at least, live in an urban area. And so that doesn't eliminate our need to affiliate with the natural world for our own self-interest, but it certainly makes it more challenging. And um, We need to think hard about how we design and develop our built environment and especially our urban built environment such that our experience of nature can be an integral part of our everyday lives. How important uh, is it that people form a connection to nature in their childhood? The most important period for learning is childhood, and many of our basic characteristics of uh, whether it be a capacity to emotionally bond with others, to intellectually develop, many of these abilities are nurtured and fostered by our relationship to the non-human environment in many, many ways that we barely recognize. Even though most children are not specifically taught different kinds of trees, and what's the difference between a robin or, and a seagull or a duck, or under what conditions does it rain and what conditions does it snow, weather. They nonetheless assimilate this and many more aspects of the natural world that foster and nurture children's uh, uh, physical and mental development. So what does that mean for someone who is was raised uh, with a lot of concrete? Even if somebody lives in in an urban area, they still experience weather, they still see trees, they still see birds, they still see grass, they see soils. And then representationally and symbolically through pictures, computers, television, and uh, books. Now, I'm not suggesting that it can't be improved and that children are increasingly disconnected from nature, which is a problem, but nonetheless, there is ample opportunity for children even in the urban area to interact and experience nature that's deeply meaningful uh, to them in a developmental sense.
2: Now, employing the thinking of biophilia and what you say it teaches us, what should we change about our healthcare care system?
9: Well, there is increasing data that demonstrates that the experience of nature can have a, a therapeutic effect on people. Certainly, people in in healthcare situations who are ill. People have recovered faster and required less uh, potent painkillers. When nature is brought into the healthcare environment, whether it be healing gardens and fountains, pictorial representations and more natural lighting, more natural materials. And so there are ways in which we can Incorporate the experience of nature in, in healthcare settings, and that has happened in a few healthcare settings, and it's happening more as the data demonstrates that it actually improves recovery and treatment. Biophilia I feel it can help save money for healthcare. It can. I mean, I'll give you a very you know trivial example. It was a study where this emergency room was a windowless environment, had white walls, uh, very sparse uh, furnishings, and there was a, a great deal of aggressive and acting out behavior between people waiting in the emergency room setting as well as between people waiting there and staff. And so they redesigned it at you know relatively modest cost. It was still the same wilderness environment, but they had a mural of a savanna-like environment with animals and plants. They brought plants in. They brought a natural material furnishings and they found a dramatic decrease in aggressive and acting out behavior and that this in a sense contributed to the bottom line of that that operational facility because of the um, declining in conflict and stress that occurred in that environment.
2: You have a chapter in your book called Aversion, and it prompts me to ask is, how is fear a basic
9: part of biophilia? Obviously, when we evolved uh, for much of our history, when we lived as a primate that wasn't particularly strong or fast, we were quite vulnerable, so if we didn't have an anxiety and a, an aversion and a fear of many aspects of the natural world, we'd be in trouble. But even today, you know, that continues to be the case. If we lack fear, we'd uh, get ourselves in trouble, such as building in floodplains or in uh, earthquake-prone areas. And below sea level, we're vulnerable to hurricanes, which is a, a more recent example. So fear continues to be functional, but also fear can be very positive. Awe is a, is a quality that is defined as fear mingled with reverence. And so fear can be a, an aspect of having a respect and appreciation for a power that's greater than yourself. Perhaps you could tell us about the encounter you had with wolves. I will. And just to set the stage... I wanted the book to be accessible to a broader audience than just scientists and professionals. So I have throughout the book about 20 plus what I call interludes, which are stories. Some of them are personal stories and others are about other people and other situations which try to bring these abstractions to life. And this was a story about uh, an experience I had with wolves in the wild. I was involved in a research project. I was with Fred Harrington, who's a, a world expert on the wolf howl. Fred and I departed close to midnight, driving for perhaps an hour down old logging roads through dark, thick, and overhanging evergreen forests. We finally arrived at a heavily wooded area where Fred had successfully called wolves a few weeks before. Fred would periodically play wolf howls, then long intervals of silence would follow as he and I listened intently. Then unexpectedly, from what seemed like a long distance away, I heard a sound so faint that initially I thought it more the product of my imagination. Fred's affirmative nod confirmed that it was a wolf calling in response to the recording. Fred then played the recording more frequently and turned the volume higher. This time, the responses became more audible and frequent. Then a wolf howl suddenly rose without warning from not far away. And then another wolf howled, answered quickly by others. It was clear that the wolves had encircled us, although they remained hidden in the dark woods. The calls were so loud and startling that my reaction was spontaneous and visceral. What had been a few moments earlier a largely an intellectual engagement, had suddenly become deeply anxious, atavistic, and discomforting. I was at the edge of panic, acutely aware of my total exposure. I could not smell or see as well as wolves, and the animal possessed a strength and ferocity and predatory prowess that reduced me, at least in my mind, to little more than edible meat. I was hardly comforted by reminding myself that wolves rarely, if ever, attack people. We cautiously backed toward the vehicle, leaving the equipment. To my immense relief, we finally reached the safety of the truck. I peered back at the lengthening shadows of the new dawn and thought I could see the shape of a large wolf. I imagined a fiery glow in his his or her eyes, one of curiosity or perhaps hungry disappointment. So how did this feel? I was confused by it because on the one hand, I was embarrassed by my, my fear and my terror, of this animal. And on the other hand, I realized that something uh, very deep and meaningful had occurred, that I had come to appreciate and respect this animal in a way that I had never known before because I experienced it on its own terms and I recognized its extraordinary prowess, its power, and its uh, magnificence. In your book, uh, Birthright, you write that spiritualism
2: forms a fundamental part of biophilia and human well being. One person
9: here looking at this said, what hope do atheists have with that? We all have a deep and abiding interest in finding meaning and purpose in our lives. I think we all want to believe that we're more than just a meaningless speck of dust at a random moment in time. And I think by having a sense of uh, deep affiliation and connection to the world beyond ourselves and all the organisms that inhabit us, it gives us a sense of relationship, a feeling of uh, meaningful connection. Why did you call your book Birthright? The notion of birthright is uh, is that we have a, a right by nature of our birth to affiliate with the natural world. It's an inherent tendency. But this is not a hardwired instinct. This is something that depends upon learning and experience to become adaptive and functional. And so it's a birthright that needs to be earned. And that was the notion of birthright. It also reflected a, a, a beautiful quote. And this was written by a a fellow named Henry Beston. And he wrote, Nature is a part of our humanity, and without some awareness and experience of that divine mystery, man ceases to be man. When the Pleiades, which is a constellation, and the wind and the grass are no longer a part of the human spirit, a part of very flesh and bone, man becomes, as it were, a cosmic outlaw, having neither the completeness and integrity of the animal nor the birthright of a true humanity."
2: Stephen Keller is author of the new book, Birthright, and Professor Emeritus of Social Ecology, a Senior Research Scholar at the Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Thank you so much, Professor Keller. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity. This week, we revisit the place where you live with another in the Living on Earth Orion magazine series. For more than a decade, Orion has called on its readers to put their memories of home on a map and submit essays on its website. And now, we're giving these reflections a voice. Home, home on the range may be the place where the deer and the antelope play, but increasingly it is also where people want to live, which can be frustrating to longtime residents.
0: My name is Linda Hazelstrom, and I'm from Hermosa, South Dakota. I live on a ranch five miles south of that town, and Hermosa is a once very small ranching community that has sprouted large numbers of subdivisions in the past 20 years. Many of the new residents feel that they need to have large so-called security lights that glare in all directions and tend to keep away the wildlife that they may have moved out here to enjoy. You can tell the old ranches because they're dark at night.
2: Still, the prairie is Linda's home, and at this time of year she says it deserves special respect.
0: One of the things about living in South Dakota is that Things can change so quickly. We know winter is coming, and we prepare for it. And some of us can smell it when it's about to snow. But it can happen any time. We have to be ready, particularly ranchers, because the cattle depend on us. And so we have to be ready for anything at any time. Blizzard. Pink sunrise. Snow hisses through the buffalo grass. I can barely see the road a half mile away. The highway patrol advises motorists to stay home. Four SUVs creep away from new houses clustered where cattle and deer grazed a year ago. The thermometer reads zero. The wind chill factor is 30 degrees below zero. My house moans with each wind gust. Snow ghosts dance on the rims of old drifts. Twelve white-tailed deer lie among the windbreak's junipers. Porcupines doze in cracks in the limestone cliffs digesting dried buffalo berries. A great-horned owl hugs the trunk of a pine. One set of black horns shows on the southern horizon telling me eleven pronghorn are gathered there. One head is always up. One set of eyes always watching. The cattle lie along the dry stream bed below the house. Backs to the north, they chew their cud and bat their icy eyelashes. On this South Dakota winter day, the animals, aware of every shift in the wind, are living comfortable, normal lives. When the moon rises and the wind falls at dark, they will move out of shelter to search for food. North of here, two trucks jackknife. A hundred vehicles skid and swerve into a mangled mess. Emergency personnel spend hours untangling the jumble. The snow piles around tawny grass. Under the sod, roots wait for the moisture that will trickle downward with snowmelt. Only the humans fret and fume against the nature of this weather, against the nature of this place.
2: Author Linda Hazelstrom lives in Hermosa, South Dakota. She writes about ranching and the environment and hosts writing retreats. Tell us about the place where you live. To find out about the Living on Earth Orion magazine series and how to post your essay, go to our website, loe.org. by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Ellen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's
5: Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.